Welcome, everyone. I'm Richard Krause, and as always, thanks for giving us a listen. This weekend, my television show, Pop Life, comes back with all new shows for our sixth season. You can see the show at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel or midnight on CTV. On the radio today, though, we'll have a look back at three musicians who have stopped by the Pop Life bar to share their stories. Randy Bachman is a household name. He's best known as the lead guitarist, songwriter, and founding member of the 1960s and 70s rock bands The Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive. He was also a member of Brave Belt, Union, and Iron Horse, and has recorded numerous solo albums. He's also a national radio personality and was inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum in 2016. In this interview, we talk about where it all began for him and where he is today. Here's Randy Bachman. I want to find out what your first exposure to playing music was. I was uh, three. Yeah. Uh, my mother and dad, of course, had a record player, 78, yeah. and, and would play Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra, that kind of stuff, you know, the swing stuff after the war. And I remember in Winnipeg, they had a radio station that, and the movie theaters were big then. They had two movies, and in between, they'd have acts that juggled, like vaudeville and stuff, right? <laughs> And every Saturday at noon on this radio station, they'd have the Western Hour. And at 12, they had the thing called King of the Saddle or Queen of the Saddle. Right. And you went up there and competed. It was the old <laughs> Star Search thing. Huh. And my mother, there's a picture of me in my, in my book. I have a little hat and a ukulele guitar. I couldn't play it, but ukulele is pretty not yeah. that intrusive. And I went and sang, You Are My Sunshine. And I won. <laughs> so when you're that young, you're three and a half or four, your allowance is like a nickel. Mm -hmm. And they give me the thing saying King of the Saddle with a $5 bill in it. Well, I bought my friends popsicles and yeah. drinks and comic books and everything. And then I learned a week later, I went back, and they had taught me Beautiful Brown Eyes. Because you've got to do a different song. To, right. They just hold their hand over your head and get applause, yeah, right? Yeah. I go back and I sing, and I think, gee, I'm just as cute this week as last. <laughs> and I'm singing away. And I lose to a little girl who's five, and she sings something else. <laughs> She's like the Shirley Temple. So in that week, I learned... Top of the charts, five bucks. Guess where you're going next? Down. There's nowhere to go but down. So I've used that all my life. Every time I've had a big success, I know what's coming next. It's, and then it's time to rebuild and rethink. And what did I do right that that happened? And let me just keep doing something till I find the right again, because there's no formula. Right. The formula is keep doing it. Keep doing what you do and wait till the lucky moment comes. So you gave up the ukulele, you took up the violin. I started violin at five yeah. and a half, yeah. Yeah, and, and tell me about violin. I can't imagine, you, if there's something about, maybe I'm just so used to seeing you with a guitar in your hand, the idea of you playing violin doesn't... doesn't well, first of all, uh, at that age, you get a half-size one, right. like a little toy, and it was Royal Conservatory. Right. You have to stand a certain way and hold your hand a certain way and do all this kind of stuff. And I found out after five or six years that I was really a great violin player. Mm -hmm that my teacher made a big mistake. It was a woman, and she'd put this chart in front of me that was Chopin or Tchaikovsky or something, and she'd play it first. And she'd say, now I want you to play it. And I'd play it perfectly. And she said, okay, pra play, practice that all week and come back next Saturday and go, why would I want to practice it all week? I just played it, yeah, I know yeah. it perfectly. And she said, okay, I'll give you two. She'd play it again. And after some time goes away, and I'm, I passed grade three, grade four, grade five, Royal Conservatory, she says, I want you to try it for the Winnipeg Junior School Symphony Orchestra in high school. So I get on my, viol my violin, get on a bus, go to where Neil Young went to high school, yeah. Calvin High in Winnipeg, and I'm there, and I'm auditioning to be second violin, which is a big deal. And halfway through playing this song, there's... 
and the whole symphony stops and the conductor says, second violin, bar 32, that's an E flat, not an E natural. Let's take it from the top. We take it from the top, gets to the same place, I play the same note. <laughs> second violin, what don't you, can you play me an E flat? And I said, I don't think so. I didn't know the strings on the violin or the notes. You just did it by I ear. I did it by ear, and every time my teacher would play it, it went in my head, I have a phonographic memory. If I hear something, I remember it all. And the notes were kind of a guide, because you see them going up and down, but I knew that that note on the second space was my second finger on the second string. So I kind of had a word association, but I didn't know that was a D or an F, or, or didn't know what anything was. I packed up my violin in tears, because all the symphony guys are laughing at me, yeah. the kids, who are pretty snobby, a lot of symphony guys are. And um, went home, never touched the violin again. The next day, Elvis was on Ed Sullivan. I went, what is that? That's a guy named Elvis. He used to be a truck driver. That's called rock and roll. That's a guitar. That's Scotty Moore. I said, I want to do that. It's, it's insane. The guy's going berserk. People are going nuts. I'm sick of standing there doing upstroke, <laughs> downstroke, and being graded on it. I just want to go wild. And my cousins had a guitar, and I borrowed the guitar. And a week later, I could play better than them because all you play in violin is melody. Right. So suddenly, I'm, a lead, I'm playing lead guitar. I'm playing lead lines. I don't read music. I don't need to. I know where the notes are. I find them, and I remember them. So that's been my whole life. And was it Scotty Moore, or was it Elvis, or was it just the whole thing? Combination. Yeah. But Elvis did play really great rhythm guitar. Mm -hmm. wow. yeah, they were amazing. And then he got a drummer, DJ Fontana, who was great. And then after that... <laughs> The Beatles changed everything. Yeah, and did, was that another lightning bolt for Yeah, you? my three great lightning bolts were Elvis, then the Beatles, and then after the Beatles, the power trios in the late mm -hmm. 60s from England, Cream, Clapton, The Who, and Zeppelin. I call them trios. Yeah. They were, were those three guys making the noise and then a lead singer. Uh, that was a big influence. My last album was a tribute to the right, heavy, heavy blues, blues, a tribute to the guitar players with seven of the world's greatest guitar players guesting on tracks. Yeah. What was your first guitar? A Harmony, uh, $34, uh, F-hole, with painted on trim. It was just like, and I still have it. Like a hollow body. The hollow body, yeah, 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 big Harmony. And I used to play like Wake Up Little Susie, and I walked the line and stuff like that. And I sold it to one of my kids in school because I wanted to buy an electric. Right. And luckily enough, his name was Stoller, Leonard Stoller. After he passed away, his son called me and said, would you like your guitar? And I've got the bill of sale when you sold it to my dad for $20. <laughs> so I had it framed. I sold this for $20, and I have the guitar back. Wow. It's wonderful. That's my first guitar. Do you ever play it anymore? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I pick it up and go, this, this began me. Yeah. This little harmony guitar. And then I, then I got a silver tone after it, which was an electric one. Yeah. Is That's why I sold that to get the electric. The problem is with guitars, you've got to sell your, like your family cars. That's right, yeah. If your dad had only kept your 56 Chev yeah, or your, yeah, your yeah. new first Corvette instead of selling <laughs> it, right? So... You say that, you know, that guitar is the thing that, that made you. Is there... Well, there is, obviously, but what kind of person would you be without the guitar? What would you be doing? I'd probably be playing violin in a symphony. <laughs> yeah, really? Well, I knew at that yeah. age yeah, what to do. When they ask in grade one, what's your name? What does your dad do? What do you want to be when you grow up? My dad's an optician. I'm a musician. Yeah. Yeah, but what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I'm a musician. I'm already that. I'm already right. like... And I, the first day of school, I ran home from school. And my mother's been doing, she dropped me off, she's doing the laundry. I go and she's doing, are you home early? Your school's on. I said, I quit. She said, what do you mean you quit? You've got 12 years of this ahead of you. I said, I keep answering the question and it's not right. And she takes me back to school. She's the teacher. 
what are you asking him? She said, I, want, I ask him what he wants to be when he grows up. And she goes, he was king of the saddle when he was three, and now he's playing well, and he is a musician. <laughs> so the teacher left me alone after that. And your parents? I, I was a correct answer. And, yeah, and your parents were okay with the, the life path? Because it's a tough one. Well, my dad kept saying, you know, you have plan B. My right. plan B is stick to plan A. <laughs> like, this is what you do. <laughs> right. Don't take no for an answer and don't say no to anything. Somebody calls you with a gig, if it's for nothing or you've got to pay 10 bucks, go and do it because you'll get a fan or you get 10 fans. Yep. And you're doing what you want to do. And if you get real lucky doing what you want to do, sometimes a ka-ching happens and you get $100 or $1,000 or a million. It's playing the lottery. Do you feel that you've done that every time? I mean, obviously, with the, the Guess Who and the bands that came before that, yeah. you did that. And then you started again with Brave Belt, and then you started again with BTO. And did each of these feel like you were starting at the Pretty bottom of the ground, elevator yeah. shaft again? Yeah, after the Guess Who, I was down to ground zero. Nobody would work with me. I was kind of blacklisted, blackballed after leaving the Guess Who. At the height the of the The Winnipeg fame. Band, yeah. number one album and single in the world, and I leave. Well, I, I actually, nobody knows. I went into the hospital for two months. I had a gallbladder issue. Right. And then all the other wishes of why should I leave or why should they throw me out came to light. It's like yeah. when you break up something, it's not one thing. When you right. get really ill, it's not one thing. It's 12 things you've been doing for 12 years. Yeah, yeah. And one thing is not going to cure you. You need to eat better, sleep better, drink better. You know, it's yeah. like a whole combination of things. So that, would, that was kind of uh, happening at the time for me. Was Brave Belt the early Beatles, uh, the early Eagles? In a way. It, it felt like uh, that to me I when I always to that envied. Music. Being in the Guess Who, mm -hmm. and RCA picks a ballad, right. These Eyes. Well, you can't argue it sells a million copies. It puts us on the right. map. Neil Young would come back to Winnipeg and play me an acetate of Buffalo Springfield, and i go, oh, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Get three harmony guitars, three lead singers, blazing prairie rock and roll, like yeah, country yeah. mixed with rock and roll. Like Buck Owens, Johnny Cash with Chuck Berry, that yeah. kind of thing, right? Yeah. And Neil would always play this, so I always wanted to play that kind of music. So uh, he was back in Winnipeg. He and Buffalo Springfield had broken up. I was out of the Guess Who. And I said, I think I want to do what you're doing, kind of country rock. And he said, great. I thought, I like Poco. There's a couple of bands out right. then. And he said, J it doesn't matter if it's successful. Just do something different. Make yourself busy. Right. I didn't want to be, and he said, Neil said to me, you can't go out and be a second-rate Guess Who. Right. Everybody's going to compare that. So go completely off the deep end. <laughs> I do something totally different that they can't even say you're a second rate. You never had a voice of Bert's greatest Burton Cummings. You'll never write songs like you and he wrote together. That chemistry thing, yep. the magic is kind of dissipated. It's gone. So go do something totally nuts that all they can say about it is this guy's lost off his rocker. <laughs> he's not as good as he used to be, right. but he's doing something different. And then Brave Belt 1, Brave Belt 2. Three Belt 3 became BTO. We changed yeah. our name. It was the same band. It shows a weird evolution there of country music. The first album had fiddle, pedal, yeah. steel, accordion. I was doing everything I wanted to do growing up playing violin. Right. My mother wanted me to be Don Messer. And, of course, you know Don, Don Messer. Don Messer. The, and the King Dan, who played with Tommy yeah. Hunter. Yeah, yeah. And all she would do, I'd, I'd have to sit with my mother and watch Don Messer's Jubilee every Saturday night or yeah. Sunday night or something. With Mark Osborne and Charlie right. and all these That's guys. Right. Yeah. And this guy, Freddie, who played the guitar <laughs> in his lap. So I would, like, learn Don Messer jigs and reels and stuff and play for my mother, who's Ukrainian, and play all the house parties. And so that was kind of in my blood. Playing so people would dance. Yeah. And as I start Bray Belt, nobody's dancing. And then a guy leaves, and I get Fred Turner, and he's got a heavier voice like John Fogarty. And we start doing Creedence Clearwater songs, and everybody's suddenly dancing. And I'm feeling at home, because when you grow up and you start a band, you play your high school, yeah. you play the hit parade, and you got to get the kids up dancing. You're listening to an interview with Randy Bachman. When we come back, 
More with the legendary musician. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Krause. This weekend, my television show, Pop Life, comes back with all new shows for our sixth season. You can see the show at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel or midnight on CTV. Today on the radio, we have a look back at three musicians who have stopped by the Pop Life Bar to share their stories. We started the conversation with Randy Bachman, founding member of the Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive. He's also a Canadian icon. Here's more with the legendary guitarist. Les Paul was a big influence on you. You saw him as a kid, and then you got to play with him. And I just think as influences go, not all of us get to meet and or work with our heroes. That must have blown your mind. But it wasn't... His guitar playing, is, aside from that, he was a wonderful guy. Right. He was a guy. He wasn't a star. Yeah. When I went to see him, I skipped school. I took a bus to the other side of Winnipeg. I sat outside the Rancho Don Carlos, which I had no idea what a drinking age was. I'm right. 16 or 17. And I'm sitting there, and the club's opening. It's like 4 o'clock, 4.30. And the guy says, what are you doing here? The owner of the club. And I said, I'm here to see Les Paul. He said, do you have your parents with you? You can't get in. Drinking age is 21. Right. Unless you're with parents, it's a supper club. They right. order something. You can sit at the table and have a cheeseburger with them. And I go, no, I, my parents don't even know I'm here. <laughs> and uh, I had to take a bus. Or my parents didn't have a car. I didn't have a car. And so uh, I'm sitting out front, and a black Cadillac pulls up. And it's, toot, toot, hey, kid, what are you doing? I said, I've got it under my arm. Would yeah. you autograph this? It's you and Mary Ford on the cover. And he said, what? I said, I came to see your show, but I can't get in. He said, come with me. I'll get you in. So he says to the club owner, okay, he's going to be in the kitchen. He's right. not out there. He could be in the kitchen. And I want him to watch my tape recorders. He had five or six tape recorders right. that he controlled with this uh, thing on his Les Paul guitar, right. start and stop and record. And he would play the rhythm. And he told the audience, here's how I record. Here's the rhythm. Da, 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 <laughs> da, 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 da. And here's the lead. And then Mary Ford, they walked around table to table. They had mics on goosenecks coming out of the guitar. And they serenaded the nightclub like Mexican guys do yeah, in a Mexican yeah. restaurant. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to watch him and Mary Ford's back through these swinging doors because waiters are walking through with dinner <laughs> and with big round windows. So they didn't want to be swing the door and knock right. the tray out of your hand. So these big glass windows. So I'm watching Les Paul through these swinging glass doors. And when, um, when I was all done, he handed me the guitar. And he's wiping his brow. Here, hold this kid. And so I hold it. And when he's all done, he comes back and he says, nice that you can sit. I say, thank you. This, better standing near your tape recorders than out there. Yeah, yeah. And I said, can you show me a lick to How High the Moon? And he shows me the lick. And uh, 30 years later, I'm playing the Coliseum opening for Van Halen. Les Paul comes in to see Eddie and Sammy Hager and all these guys. And he, after he's done all that, he comes to me and he says, do I know you? And I said, Rancho Don Carlos. He said, hi, kid. Wow. Do you remember that lick? Here's a guitar. And I go, <laughs> and he invites me the next day to the Iridium Club. And he's, he's playing there every Monday yeah, night. Yeah. And he says... I've got a really old, cool friend out in the audience who's a big influence on my life, on my life, and I'm an influence on his. And uh, I'm wondering, who is? Who's he talking about? Yeah, yeah, and he calls yeah. me up, and I go, <laughs> me? And I go out there, and he says, okay, play the lick I showed you when you were 15, back in whenever that was, 19-whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I okay, and he starts how high the moon. And so I play the lick, and he claps, and he says, let's do one of yours. And I go, what? <laughs> okay, three chords, taking care of business. And he plays... Taking care of business That's with me amazing. It was amazing. What did, it, it, what's going through your mind 
as that happens. The guy that invented the electric guitar is playing your like, song. Why, th this is like absolutely totally amazing. Yeah. I've got the 59 Les Paul that yeah. with the American woman guitar. I've got that wonderful memory of knowing him as like re yeah. as a really nice guy. And all the innovations he made are still, we still use them today. Well, when the Guess Who, you mentioned the, the Guess Who, the American Woman song. When the Guess Who broke so big, they were the first real Canadian band that had kicked down that door That played in and sang all that, our own stuff. That, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And uh, what was going through your mind then? Did you know that you were breaking ground or were you just on the road and it's busy? No, there was no media. Right, unless you got up early in the morning and got the paper that reviewed your show the night before, right. and a lot of times they didn't because you're nobody. Yeah. You just, you couldn't, there was no faxes. Yeah. You had to phone your agent, where are we going? Okay, you're driving 280 miles to Des Moines. <laughs> Ask for Joe Smith, go to this club, it's on the corner. And you showed up and said, we're here, and he said, great setup. Here's your 200 bucks. And then you phoned your, where are we going next? And you're just on the road. You never did your laundry. You right. threw away your socks and your underwear. You went to JCPenney <laughs> and bought three packs of white shirts, white shorts, and white socks. Right? And you'd wear them for a week, throw them away. You had no time. To, we actually had no money to do that or no or, or time. And so that's the life you're living. And you don't know what the trail you're blazing, what's right. happening. Because it's all this cumulative and yeah. it's for... 100 people, then 300, then 500, and then DJs are talking to each other. There's still no real social media. Mm -hmm. But when your next record comes out, those 90 days you've done in those 100 days you've been yeah. on the road, the 90 days that you played, suddenly all those radio stations play. They know you. They know you're a good guy. They know you're out there rock and rolling. You're doing your best. You're trying to honor your gift that you've yeah, given yeah. playing music. And they all play your record at once. And then suddenly you get a, a bump in sales because everybody knows it's out and buy it at once. Right. And you go do that again and it's building upon building and building. Now you put something out on social media. Somebody's on the voice or something, yep. overnight they have three million downloads. They make three million dollars overnight yeah. on a download on, on iTunes. What do you think uh, the benefit to doing it the way you did it is? It teaches you things. It, it must teaches you way. a discipline. Uh, starting violin at five, Burton yeah. Cummings started piano at five. Yes. Gary Peterson, our drummer could, who could read music, started drums at five. So there's a wonderful book out called The Tipping Point. We hit our tipping point at 14 or 15. When other guys saying, we want to start a band and trying to learn three chords, I've been practicing in Burton Cummings and Gary Peterson for 10, 12,000 right. hours. Our parents made us practice an hour before school, and you come home from school, change your school jeans, put on your old jeans, go out and play after you do an hour yeah. on, on, on violin or guitar. When I got to guitar, my parents didn't have to tell me to practice. I was in <laughs> seven or eight, right from school till the next morning, learning Chuck Berry, buying a single and learning both sides of the single, then trading the single with someone else and getting another single. So it becomes, it becomes your passion and your fire. When did you start writing songs? Then? So you're playing right, guitar. Uh, right off the top. Yeah. Uh, I had a great mentor in Winnipeg named Lenny Bro, who was a year older than me. Lenny when he Bro. moved to town, he could what? play all the Chet Atkins fingerstyle stuff. Yeah. And I said to him, you know, Nobody can get to you. You're so busy. But I'm lucky. I, I got to, He lived across the street from a girlfriend of mine. So I'd go and hang out with him after school every day. And I played hooky for a year. Went to his house every afternoon. And learned every Chet Atkins and Merle Travis song there was. Yeah. And after that, Chuck Berry or Dwayne Eddy's pretty easy. <laughs> after you play with all your fingers and stuff, right? And so that was like my, uh, my thing. And I'd say to him, you know, so other kids are coming to me for guitar lessons. Do you mind if I show them what you show me? He'd say, no, no, it's, it's free. Pass it around. And I said, you know, this little kid who came in, he couldn't play. I told him that I couldn't give him any lessons. He came back two weeks later. He could play the song better than me. And he said, there'll always be a better guitar player than right. you. Write good songs. <laughs> they last forever. 
I started writing songs. That was Randy Bachman at the Pop Life Bar. When we come back, Canadian soprano Misha Bruger-Gossman opens up about life-changing moments and what it means to her to have a full life. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Krause. This weekend, my television show, Pop Life, comes back with all new shows for our sixth season. You can see the show at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel or midnight on CTV. Today on the radio, we have a look back at the musicians who have stopped by the Pop Life Bar to share their stories. In this segment, we get to know Canadian soprano Misha Bruger-Gossman, who opens up about life-changing moments and what it means to her to lead a full life. Misha, welcome to the Pop Life Bar. Thank you so much for having me and for pouring me a beautiful Pinot mm-hmm. from you, the Niagara Peninsula. I know, and so delicious. <laughs> and so, so delicious. delicious. <laughs> Your musical journey has taken you all over the world. You've played on the, the world's greatest stages, but it started in Fredericton, New Brunswick. That's right. Yeah. Where did the love of classical music come from? I grew up in the Maritimes, and I probably didn't hear classical music until I was well past the age that you were singing it already. Yeah, I mean, the music tradition of the church I grew up in was a classical one, and so I really was exposed to classical music very early, mm-hmm. not to mention the fact that my father worked for the CBC, which at mm-hmm. the time had a predominantly classical right. uh, programming, and you know, I grew up on Saturday afternoon at the opera, yeah. the Texaco broadcast, <laughs> Howard Dick presenting, you know, and I just saw them as my pop stars were very much the singers on those airwaves, and I, I really wanted to be like them when I grew up. Well, and you started singing so early at a time when, you know, I was playing hide and seek and riding yeah. bikes and things. You were studying classical music already, but I was wondering, trying to put myself in that same place, and I was thinking the rules. It's very technical. There's a lot of rules, and I don't know if I would have had the patience for it. What was it in you that found that patience? Well, you know, I'm the youngest of three. We're all separated by five years. Right. Uh, my sister's five years older. My brother's 10 years older. My brother was good at everything, right. is a PhD pastor and a successful dad of four kids who all like each other. And then my sister was like a national gymnast. We were very goal-oriented, mm-hmm. incredibly driven kind of type A personalities. And so when I found something that was as challenging as classical piano. I was a pianist for a long time and always was taking voice lessons alongside my piano lessons. And singing came natural to me, but I was always a classical singer. And if I had (laughs) known than what I know now about how hard it is, I maybe would have honed in a little bit sooner. But I'm really glad it's working out. It just was something that, pulled me in. I feel like in the nature or nurture department, I probably maybe wouldn't have been a natural mm-hmm. classical musician. So I'm glad that that genre found me early because it wouldn't maybe have been something that I would have chosen, which is probably why I speak about it so freely and right. openly and candidly because it is, um, it does kick me in the butt quite regularly. Well, you've said that you had to f- sort of figure out a way to make the rules work for you. Yeah, and it's like, You know that it will be challenging, that it will be an art form that will constantly um, elude you, that you're meant to find a way to make it sound easy Mm -hmm. while 
it being like actually quite um, incredibly difficult, but it's the image of the swan on the surface of the water, which is kicking ferociously yeah. underneath. The, the part you can't see. Yeah, the part yeah. you can't see is the part that fascinates me and yeah. keeps me coming back for more. Um, but if you're not comfortable or uh, haven't resolved yourself to the fact that 94% of the life that you're living won't be seen by anyone and you can't be living for that 6% that's on stage. Right. Like you have to love the process and you have to be find delight and joy in the fact that the process is never gonna get you to a destination. So you have to be about the work. Like yeah. you really have, because this, this is a, a job where the majority of what um, I do is not seen by anyone, mm -hmm. including the lost luggage, including <laughs> that's the, right. You know, the, the, my children don't care what I do for a living. Yeah. They just know that it makes their lives possible. Right. Yeah, and that was the same with my parents. You know, my parents sacrificed, and and the blood, sweat, and tears that went into giving me the life that I mm -hmm. uh, was able to enjoy that got me here. You know, nobody saw all that toil and sacrifice. Well, you say, and I love this quote, I feel like I was groomed for great things. Whether it was great success or great loss, I have a capacity for extremes. What does that say about your personality? Well, I think you got to burn bright or not at all. <laughs> like it's the same, like the old adage, adage go big or go home, yeah, right? Yeah. I just don't see any point in a life half lived. And I, when I pray for my life to be full, it means full of all of the things that make life interesting. The people who leave you should not be there and the losses that you suffer are meant to break you through to a, 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 a larger capacity, mm -hmm. a larger capacity for patience, for grief, for loss. Those are the ingredients that actually build a interesting character, a character that can withstand, I guess, the storms and what makes things interesting are the loss and the regret. If you can make your peace with that, right. then nothing really seems like it is unto death because the only constant is change. Well, I think that you have to have some loss and grief and all that stuff to understand how to move past it. You yeah. can read about it and people can say to you, oh, just get over it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. But until you're in the middle of it, it doesn't really make sense to you until then. I mean, those dark nights of the soul are like for reals. And yeah. you see the lashes and the gloss, but what really happens to make someone of substance, someone of like real um, longevity yeah. are the times where you're just in the fetal position in tears. And you need those moments so that you can kind of breathe new air and get back to the rarefied life that God has blessed you with. Because the responsibility is to get up. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's gonna be moments where you're just thinking that it's never going to be light again. But if you live through enough dark moments, then you know that the light inevitably comes. Do you think that living through some of them, and we'll talk about your, your heart operation yeah. and <laughs> there's a, your book and the whole thing, but do you think that living through those has informed your art? Do you think you're a better singer because uh, you had that, that breadth of experience? Yeah, I think I care less about things that aren't important. Because that's, you... That's what you learn. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, so I almost died. Do I really need 
to be upset about the fact that traffic isn't moving. Right. You know, it's like, I still get annoyed by, like I went to a Bible study on the like breastplate of peace or the armor of God, and then I come home and like that stupid Ikea bed frame thing <laughs> that keeps your mattress in place somehow made my mattress, and I was like, for the love of, and I was like, peace gone. But at the same time, I know that these little things, it, you'll get caught. Mm -hmm. You'll get caught and your capacity for patience will expand the more you catch yeah. the things that will like bring you to your knees. And it's hilarious, the things that will bring you to your knees. It could be just like a dropped call yep. or like something stupid, but all of a sudden you find yourself raging and swearing a blue streak and you're like, well, Holy Spirit, yeah. lesson learned. <laughs> Test maybe slightly failed, but there's wine for that. <laughs> well, you said, and again, I love this. I keep throwing your quotes back to you. In 2012, you wrote, if I ever write a biography, it will be called, this uh, isn't what I thought my life would be. Now, you years later did write a book but you called it something is always on fire yes so it's a much different thing uh, yes. and it was after you had had some terrible yeah. things happen yeah. and you're very open about them in the, the best time to write a book is after all of right. the s-i-h-i-t yep. yep. i don't know if we can say that on you just camera did. but hits the fan yeah it's i think I just came to the realization, the book was like a year late, by the way, because mm -hmm. I was not sure right. what it would be about, because it turns out it's like super easy to get a book deal, and then you still have to write the book. <laughs> you still have to write it. It's the money is spent, money. and you yeah, still have yeah, to write yeah. it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, uh, Father God, what is this book supposed to be about? And I realized that better I talk about the infidelities and the loss of the babies yeah. and the exploding aorta and the impossible nature of living a successful life and still feeling like you're failing forward. Yeah. Uh, better me to write about it and let that person who's living in isolation thinking that right. there's no way for Christians to get divorced better that I write it then they continue living a life feeling that they're completely alone and that there's nobody like them. Right. That was Canadian soprano Misha Bruger-Gossman. When we come back, rock legend Robbie Robertson shares tales from his storied life. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Krause. This weekend, my television show, Pop Life, comes back with all new shows for our sixth season. You can see the show at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel or midnight on CTV. Today on the radio, we have a look back at three of my favorite musicians who have stopped by the Pop Life Bar to share their stories. In this segment, we'll meet legendary musician Robbie Robertson. We talk about his earliest musical inspirations, how he was booed by Bob Dylan's audience, and how he once almost turned to a life of crime when he couldn't get gigs. Here's Robbie Robertson. So your love of music has deep roots in the Six Nation Reserve that you partially grew up on. What do you remember uh, about music and, and that part of your life? Well, it was a revelation to me because uh, I grew up between Toronto and Six Nations. And when we would go to Six Nations, it seemed to me as a young kid that everybody played an instrument or sang or danced. And I thought, oh, I just got to join this club. Do you think that your time spent there not only gave you the uh, love of music, 
that has stayed with you, uh, but your your gift of storytelling. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it, it was where it got under my skin that I thought there was a gift. When I read the, the lyrics of the songs and, and hear the, the, the lyrics of the songs, they're very evocative. There's a, a great use of wordplay. There's a great way of telling a story within these songs. I've always been drawn to story songs. Mm -hmm too and you know all these things they connected for me early on it's all this connection between music and pictures and stories so it lives on with me and the the songs that that you have written that have touched people so there's been so many of them but I love the story about the song the weight now I've been hearing this song for as long as I've been alive almost and I have an idea of, of what it's about, and I think a lot of people, if you talk to anyone, they'll have an idea of what it's about. But I love that the reference to Nazareth is where your guitar was made. Uh, yeah. You looked down and saw that on your guitar. You gotta have a starting, <laughs> you gotta have a first line. And I didn't know, I didn't know, you sit down and you got a blank canvas mm -hmm. and you think, oh, I gotta write a song. What if, what am I going to write about? And I'm sitting there, the guitar is there, and it says, Nazareth, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Yeah, like made in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. <laughs> right? <laughs> so <clears throat> I, that was the first line, and it, it just it set me off on that. Do you think in, in very specific ways about the way that your heritage has affected your songwriting? You know, I don't really know how to put my finger mm -hmm. on that. And, and dissect it and yeah. really understand, except it's where I come from and it's in the blood. You find your way to Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie Hawkins looms large in the history of not only American but Canadian music as well. But you were very young and I sometimes wonder, you know, what does Ronnie Hawkins see in a 15-year-old and vice versa? Well, when I first saw Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, it was it, it, it were, was one of the most powerful things musically that I had ever witnessed in my life, you know, that I could go to. I couldn't go to clubs. I was 15 years old. And I had a, a little band, and we were booked to Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks were playing on a weekend at a, an arena in Toronto. And we were booked to be the opening act. And when I saw them, you know, seeing the real thing, seeing this music that comes from the South, seeing this music that's part of that world of Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and Conway Twitty and all of the Johnny Cash, all of these amazing artists. And to me, it was all about the South. Right. That's where this music grows out of the ground. So I tried, I tried to spend time with them and Ronnie and the other guys in the Hawks, they didn't shoo me away. Mm -hmm. They let me hang around. <clears throat> And the big thing was when I heard Ronnie Hawkins say, I got to make a new album and 
I gotta, I gotta get some songs to record. And I wrote a couple of songs and he recorded them. And that's when he recognized in me, oh, maybe this guy might have some talent. And I was 16 years old. And, and so, you know, I, my world stopped. And I was like, I gotta see if I can make this work, if I can make this work. This is magic. Some of the places you played uh, were really interesting, and I've only ever read about them, but I love the story uh, about working with Jack Ruby or working for Jack Ruby. Uh, I mean, this is incredible, the people that you would have met along the way and the stories that you gather as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, as a teenager being exposed to that uh, must have kind of blown your mind. We went to this place. It was like... Uh, that it looked like it, this was a mistake because <laughs> the place had been set on fire and, and like the roof was burned off the building. We're like, what kind of a place is this to play? And they, it was called the Skyline Lounge. Well, they named it the Skyline because Lounge because the, sky. the roof was burned off. <laughs> we first played, there was nobody there. And then some people came and all kinds of crazy stuff. We had to guard our equipment because people could just, you know, it wasn't like you couldn't get in this place. And so this guy said, you got to, someone's got to stay here and look after your equipment or they'll steal it. And anyway, so we played the place. The guy was strange. He would show up. We'd be guarding the equipment, some of us. And he would show up at 4.30 in the morning, still like, he was kind of like creeping around. You didn't know what the deal was with this guy. I don't know, six months later or something, we hear about this guy <clears throat> that has killed Oswald, the guy who has killed the president yeah. of the United States. This guy has killed Oswald, and his name is Jack Ruby. We're like, Jack Ruby? That's the guy from the Skyline Lounge. Well, didn't you at one point come up with kind of an unusual way? You and Levon Helm, you were broke and you needed some money. You didn't go through with it, from what I understand. But uh, there was a time when you were on the road that you thought, well, there's high-stakes poker games happening around here. You can rob one of those. And we were playing down south, and we had run out of money. And, uh, and in this lifestyle in this world that we were in we met a lot of shady characters <laughs> a lot of thieves right. and here in toronto a lot of our friends and everything were people that stole for a living right. professionally and this guy tells us there is a high-stakes poker game. You guys just put some sacks over your head. I got guns. Go in there. <laughs> say, give me your money. These guys will be scared. They'll give you the money, and then you'll be all right. Yeah. And the, the fact that we actually thought, oh, that's not a bad idea, <laughs> a crazy idea like that. And we actually were on our way to pull off this robbery in the car, and the guy comes out and said, they called off the game tonight. I have to ask you about
playing with Bob Dylan uh, during the electric period, but I can't imagine what it must have been like to stand on that stage with one of the most you know, revered songwriters and performers of, of his era, and yet the audiences are responding in such a, a horrible way to you. I had never seen anything like this or heard of anything like this ever. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of this thing. We're playing all over North America, all over Australia, Europe, everywhere we play. They boo us. I mean violently boo us and sometimes throw stuff. And hold up signs that say Judas. When that's happening, you can't help but feel like, God, we must be doing something terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And at one point, we were listening to a tape of the concert we had done that night. And I heard that tape, and I said to Bob, and I said to the other guys, they're wrong. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> but there was times when, you it know. It can't feel great up there when that's happening. Yeah. That's like people saying we really don't like you mm -hmm. out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to talk a little bit more because you've got these uh, incredible projects coming up. There's a, a documentary uh, uh, produced by Martin Scorsese and Ron Howard and Brian Glazer uh, that looks back at the influence of the band and your work. I, I really think of it as something magical that happened. Yeah. And we were so lucky that we found each other, that Ronnie Hawkins helped us find each other, and that our, our talents in the band, in the band, each guy was such a pivotal player in that, was so extraordinary that we just loved what each other did. Mm -hmm. and, and the contribution it made to the whole of it. That was Robbie Robertson, and that's a wrap for today's show. My thanks to all my guests, Randy Bachman, Misha Bruger-Gossman, and Robbie Robertson. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for listening. You can see my show, Pop Life, at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel or midnight on CTV. We'll talk to you again next time.